0: For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word for us today.
1: Good morning. My name is Carl Durnell. I'm a member here at Redemption. Um, We have a lot of visitors today, so it's really good to see you. Thanks for celebrating the dedication with us. Um, I'm serving as an elder candidate this year, and I'm super excited to just bring uh, Psalm 16 before you guys, and I'm really pumped about this passage, so let's get started. But would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you so much for your word. Thanks so much for how encouraging it is and for how it reveals you. So my prayer today, Lord, is that we would submit to the authority of your word, that we would recognize that it is you who is the source of all good. And if we want to preserve that good, we better be seeking your presence. So in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, have you ever had that moment in life that you wish could have lasted forever? I mean, I'm talking about those movie-worthy moments where you're in the middle of experiencing something and you're already a little sad because your brain's like, Uh, This has to end sometime, a moment that makes you think, ah, this is the good life. Now, I'm sure most, if not all of you, have some moment, and hopefully many, that we wish we could freeze and experience them for much, much longer than they are. And I know all of us want to somehow obtain and preserve the good life, even if we don't know what that means. And this is our big question today, how do we preserve the good life? And I think Psalm 16 is a biblical answer to that big question. In other words, the psalmist is explaining how he makes one of the greatest moments of his life, one of those moments that we wish could last forever, actually last forever. You see, in Psalm 16, verse 11, we see that is David's experience of the good life. Verse 11 stands on its own as this description of enraptured worship, and when I read how deeply David believes God is the one secret to his life's direction, how God holds all the pleasures and joy that are possible to be experienced, it feels like I've intruded on a personal moment. It feels like I've invaded David's privacy, if I'm honest, but it's amazing what he claims. God as the fullness of joy. God as the one who holds all the pleasures that exist forevermore. And it's this sense of amazement that I think David is purposefully trying to use. And I do think that this psalm is best understood if we have verse 11 echoing in our minds. For verse 11 and the good life that it describes is underpinning the claims of David throughout the whole thing. So to see this today, we're going to move through the psalm in four parts. And we're going to see how Psalm 16 is the answer to our big question. How do we preserve the good life? And before we get started in the text, I think a little bit of historical background would be helpful. Uh, The author of this specific psalm is David. And David's the second king of the nation of Israel. And it's going to be important for us today to remember that David was both celebrated and a famous king. So our passage today is kind of like a seminar on how to live the good life given by a historical figure who honestly might have one of the best claims in an earthly, uh, worldly sense as to knowing what the good life really is. And the original audience, the people of Israel, would certainly be perking up their ears if King David were to address them like he is here and tell them how he keeps his good life going. And so with this dynamic in mind, let's move to part one, the king's request and reason. Look at verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Right away we see the king's request. And what is he requesting? Preservation. Preserve me, O God. So pausing here, what might we be led to ask when we see this request? I think it natural to ask preserve what? From what? Because the idea of preservation here is somewhat close to what we might think Um, about our animal or our nature preserves, this idea of maintaining something assumed to be good at a certain level. It's the idea of keeping something good going even when it might be difficult to do so. Even more to the point, I think this idea of preservation assumes that were not any intervention to happen, the good thing to be preserved would almost certainly go away. So think of some of the nature preserves around us in Milwaukee. Were not these plots of land separated as specific entities meant to preserve the natural habitat and the plants and the animals, they would almost certainly get lost to the inexorable growth of a metropolitan area. So in other words, David is really asking here that God keeps something going. Now we also see David asking for God to be his refuge. And what does refuge mean? It means a place of safety. It means a place of protection in the same way that you run inside during a thunderstorm, in the same way that you run downstairs away from the windows in the event of a tornado, which I've never experienced. Um, I come from Colorado. We have a few tornadoes there. You take refuge in a place that actually can save you from that which you are seeking refuge from. So taken together, we see two important things. One, David's asking God to keep something going, to preserve something. And two, David seeks God himself as a refuge to make that preservation happen. So the question we might ask next is, what exactly is worth preserving? What is worth seeking refuge from? And that comes in verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In verse two, we see David's reason for his request for preservation. We see why he's seeking refuge. And his reason is this. God is the source of all the good that David has ever known. And to lose God is to lose all good. Look at this incredible phrase again. Apart from you, David's talking to God, I have no good. It is the person of God, in ostensibly proximity to that person, relationship with that person, that David desperately wants divine help to preserve. In other words, God... The person of God, the specific, identifiable, knowable God of the Bible, somehow is the mechanism by which God could atta- or David could attain any good whatsoever. And that is an astounding claim. To hammer it home, let's look at verse 11. For it is verse 11 that makes the reason for David's request all the more clear. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here we have three related ideas in rapid succession. So related in their intent, they don't even deserve their own sentences. And here's these three ideas all point to one admission. And we saw that admission in verse two. Apart from God, there is no good. So according to verse 11, to not have some access to this person of God would mean that one would not have any knowledge of the path of life. It would mean that one would not have fullness of joy, and one would not have pleasures forevermore. So David's clear in Psalm 16, verse 2 and 11, that God himself is the source of David's good, and that is what David is asking to be preserved, that is what David is ultimately fearing to lose, God himself. So in part one, we see both the king's request and the king's reason. The request is that God preserve the good life that he's given to David. And the reason is that were not this divine intervention to happen, David would lose his source of good. So the theme's already established of the Psalm by this point. And so I I think the next three parts are essentially developments of that theme In other words, I think they're actually natural consequences of David's realizations in verse two and his good life that we see in verse 11. They're just working themselves out in his life. These consequences are seen in David's relationships, his estimation of his life circumstances, and in his unshakable confidence in God. So that leads us to part two, the king's good relationships. So here we see a comparison between how David interacts with two different groups of people And the first group highlighted are the saints in the land. These are the people who love God, those who faithfully follow God and obey God. They are those who, like David, see God as their source of good. So compare this to what we see in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David's point in verse 4 is to contrast the delight and the completeness that he finds in the company of other people who faithfully worship God. And he compares that with the lack of delight and the multiplying presence of sorrow that characterize the worship of other gods. You see, to David the source of his good is found in God and running toward God. So to partake in idolatry is to do the very opposite. It's to run away from God. To do that would be running away from the good life. So David simply isn't interested in spending any time on any worship practice that will rob him of joy as opposed to give him complete and full delight. Instead, he's going to stay at God's right hand with the other faithful saints and share all of his delight with them as they together experience pleasures forevermore. So really part 2 of our passage has dealt with this natural consequence of David's desire to preserve the good life. That's the natural consequence of how he goes about relationships. Which brings us to part 3, the king's chosen portion. We see in verse 5 a very bold declaration of David. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He continues into verse 6 to say that I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, remembering our background about who David is, one might think, okay, David, sure, Uh, you have a beautiful inheritance, you're a king, you have power, you have influence, you have money, you name it. You see, one might be tempted to think that David's talking about something purely physical here, but is David here in Psalm 16 claiming that it's his king status or that it's the success of his conquests or his riches or anything inherently world king-ish that would constitute his beautiful inheritance. No, it's deeper than that. It's more than that. So here, once again, I'll draw your attention to verse 11. God himself is the source of David's good life. In God's presence is joy. At his right hand are pleasures. So of course... God is going to be David's chosen portion and his cup. David doesn't want anything else because he knows that anything else won't have the same good. It it won't measure up. It won't preserve the good life. And he's saying that because he chooses God, because he pursues the presence of God, verse 11 affects everything in his life. That experience that he describes in that verse makes his inheritance, regardless of what it looks like in an earthly sense, good. The lines have fallen for him in pleasant places. Why? Because pleasing things, aka pleasures, are at God's right hand. And David has made God's right hand his chosen portion. And it's exactly because of David's definition of the good life, namely being with God, close to God, at God's right hand, that verses 7 and 8 are also true for him. Verses 7 and 8 are essentially consequences of David's good life found in God. And one consequence is that David receives counsel. He's instructed by God himself. David's word choice of in the night my heart instructs me suggests that even the subroutines of David's consciousness are being influenced for good by God. I mean, how often do we find ourselves Wishing for wisdom to navigate the challenges of a complicated life, and here David is suggesting that the good life he experiences includes and results in God-given counsel and instruction continuously. Another consequence of David's good life, his making God his chosen portion, is emotional and spiritual, confidence and peace, spiritual unshakeability. Verse eight is so powerful. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And in a profound reiteration of the main theme of this whole psalm, David proclaims that he uses all the power of his choice to, what? Build up his kingdom? Conquer more people? Develop wise counselors who can better advance his throne's political agenda? None of those things. He chooses to set the Lord always before him. And what are the consequences of that choice? I shall not be shaken. In other words, David's saying that with the Lord at his right hand, verse 11, will always be true. And so whatever happens to him in life, he will always have access to the fullness of joy. He will always have counsel into the paths of life and pleasures. If David gets God, he gets everything he needs, and everything he wants. So in an unexpected way, this good king has revealed to his audience his strategy for preserving the good life. And that strategy is our big idea today. It's the answer to our big question. How do we preserve the good life? And David says, this is how. We preserve the good life by making God the source of all good, our chosen portion and seek to be in his presence. So how about you? Are you tracking so far with David? Can you honestly, before God, and before every one of your thoughts and actions, both known and unknown, point to all that you are and say with David, Psalm 16, verse 2, apart from God, you have no good. Because the answer to that question is the key to how we're going to go about applying this passage to our lives here. According to Psalm 16, we have to ask ourselves this question, what is your chosen portion and the source of all your good? Is the source of your good the God of the Bible? Is God your chosen portion? And so David gives us two areas of life to be specifically mindful of as we earnestly and honestly ask ourselves this question. The first area David points to is the realm of relationships. So remember from verse 3 that David described the faithful worshipers of God as in whom is all my delight. Uh, Also remember the contrast to verse 4, that the sorrow of those who run after other gods shall multiply. So for us, we just need to examine our relationships and ask, am I experiencing a full and complete joy? Or are my sorrows multiplying? And the answer for that question will reveal to us the heart of our relationships, You see, according to Psalm 16, preserving the good life means staying close to God. It means staying at his right hand. Do you want that enough to follow other people who are doing it better than you? Are you encouraged by other Christians' joy in their pursuit of God? Or do you find it annoying and chalk it up to silly religious fervor and likely they're just going to grow out of it when they figure out what life is really like? Are you seeking meaningful, long-term discipleship relationships with other saints who will enable you to experience more delight by helping you make God increasingly your chosen portion? Here's another question. Is your sphere of influence likely to spiritually pollute your worship of God, to tempt you away from the presence of God and thus fullness of joy? Are you surrounding yourself with people who run after other gods, and pressure you to do the same. And this could look like friends who tempt you to consistently become drunk or party irresponsibly, ostensibly to chase after the God of a good time. Uh, This can look like relationships that pressure you into sexual acts that are performed out of the context of the one-man, one-woman marriage for life for which God has intended those acts to be celebrated in. They could even look like friends who consistently influence you into becoming increasingly cynical, who pressure you to become ever more suspicious, to deconstruct or scoff at everything, including eventually the things that God cares about. Here's the point. Your relationships may reveal to you that you don't think God is the source of your good. They may reveal to you that you think other people are, or at least the way that those other people make you feel, revealing, of course, that it's your feelings that are the source of your good. Now, don't mishear me, please. I'm not saying that you need to stop interacting with non-Christians and avoid any people in your life that aren't in the saints category we see in verse 3, and David's not saying that either. It's not a matter of specific avoidance as much as it's a matter of specific pursuit of what you're actually interested in. You're either actually interested in God as your source of good or you aren't. Therefore, you're either inclined to delight in surrounding yourself with saints who also pursue God with you, or you tend to prefer surrounding yourself with people who help you pursue some other source of good. But here's the Psalm 16 truth you need to hear. Running after any God besides the God of this Bible will only multiply your sorrows. It won't give you the good life It'll take it from you. The second area of life that David points out is our regard for our life circumstances. We see in Psalm 16 that David sees himself as having a beautiful inheritance and his life as having the lines or boundaries that have fallen in pleasant places. Does that seem like a foreign concept to you? We live in a culture that's built on the idea that life could be better. It would be better if I just had more. Or bombarded by marketing campaigns that imply as much, just buy this product and then the boundaries of your life will be pleasant. Just work hard and chase money so that you can buy this house in this neighborhood because then you'll have a beautiful inheritance. So instead of looking to God and defining life as good because you have God, do you tend to get mad at God when you don't have the stuff you want? Because that reveals a heart that thinks you are the source of good. And that you deserve good things, so God just better get with the program. That's not what David does in Psalm 16. If you lost your house, your car, your job, your spouse, your technology, your savings, your, your favorite version of this country that you want to live in, any one of these things that comprise your earthly inheritance, if you lost it all, would you still have good? Would it still be possible for you to say that because of God, you have a beautiful inheritance? Because that's what David is showing us in Psalm 16. So David's used these two areas of life, relationships and life circumstances, to reveal his strategy for preserving good life. And the strategy hinges on whether we think God is the source of our good or not. Whether we're running toward him or running after another God. The last area of life that David highlights is the area of eternal life. For there is one experience that every one of us is sure to have, death. And should we, we should be asking ourselves whether or not death will separate us from the good life. So that brings us to part four, the king's unshakable confidence. We see in verses 9 through 10 that David claims that not even death can separate him from God, his source of good. He claims that God will not abandon him to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's the idea that understood by his audience of the place where souls of the dead go. He also claims that God won't let him see corruption, which here is best understood as the idea of remaining forever in the grave, suffering the full effects of death, which include the body's decay and spiritual separation from God that death means. But instead of being hopeless in the face of death, David's whole being rejoices, and his flesh dwells secure. Even the prospect of death somehow doesn't shake him. And why would he say this? Why does it even matter for him? Well, remember, God is the source of David's good, and separation from God is, to David, the removal of all good, should death have its full corrupting effect, David would be separated from God. So church, it's in these verses that we see the true extent of David's request for preservation. We see how much of a refuge David believes God to be. David's actually claiming that he believes God will reach down into death and alter its course for his good. David knows that God has to intervene to preserve his good life because death and corruption... Are David's destiny otherwise? So at this point we could, as 21st century readers, shut off. We, we could see claims like this and just write David off as being an overly religious, deluded fool, because as it turns out, David did die. His body was buried. It decayed. Was David's faith in God futile? Was it misguided? Well, the whole of the biblical narrative would say no. And actually, this very question gets answered later in the Bible. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter gives what's often called the first Christian sermon. And I love the Bible for reasons just like this, because in this sermon, we see some pretty familiar text. So Acts chapter 2, I'll start in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God It's so incredible. So moving to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. So being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter quotes Psalm 16 to make this point. David's confidence that God would preserve his good life, somehow even through death, was not a confidence tied to this earthly life. The confidence instead was in a powerful God who always keeps his promises. And it was in a future reality where death was defeated. And so we, even now, in 2021, so much later than the life of David, can have the same incredible level of confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus. So therefore, for us today in 2021 Wawatosa, we have to recognize that it is Jesus who secures our access to God's right hand, that place where pleasures are forevermore, that place where there's fullness of joy. We have to make the connection that to reject Jesus is to reject the pleasures at God's right hand, for Jesus is the one at God's right hand. And it is through relationship with Jesus that we're also welcomed into the presence of God as fellow children. In other words, to reject Jesus is to reject the good life. For it is to reject God. However, for you today, should you be trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who perfectly secures for you access to God's presence through the removal of your idolatry, through the removal of your sin, simply choose To make God your chosen portion. Choose to let the delight of Psalm 16, verse 11, permeate everything. For Jesus has given you access to the right hand of God. Jesus has preserved the good life for you. So in conclusion, church, we preserve the ultimate good of eternal life through relationship with Jesus who is eternally at the right hand of God the Father and who brings us there with him. Let's pray. Thanks, God, so much for your word. It is incredible to see the truths of your goodness throughout your entire scriptures. Very, very thankful for Psalm 16 in particular today, how it has helped to remind us that you are definitely all we need for the good life. I just pray that you would help us understand more and more the ways that we're choosing to follow after other sources of good and help us to repent. Instead, help us to turn and choose to pursue you, the true source of all good. So Lord, we're thankful for this time together. We're thankful for the celebration of life that we've had today. And we're so incredibly thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes all these things possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.